This is the Innovation Engine Podcast. Every Monday, we bring you interviews with some of the world's leading authorities on innovation. We talk about company culture, corporate leadership, emerging trends in technologies, and more. Coming to you from Three Pillar Global's headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia, here's your host, Will Sherlin. Welcome back to the Innovation Engine Podcast. On this week's episode, we'll be looking at managing innovation. What given enough eyeballs, all bugs are shallow means. What network science tells us about how to create organizations that run smoothly. And how to know what kind of innovation your company is best equipped to pursue. Here with us today to discuss all that and more is Greg Sattel. Greg is a prolific writer whose work is published often on Forbes.com, InnovationExcellence.com, and in publications like the Harvard Business Review. He blogs on issues at the crossroads of media, marketing, and technology at www.digitaltonto.com. Greg is an independent consultant and speaker whose background includes 15 years living and working in Eastern Europe, where he helped build some of the premier publishing brands in the region. Welcome to the podcast, Greg. Nice to be here, Will. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. So let's kick things off today talking about some of the fundamentals of managing innovation. You wrote an article in the Harvard Business Review recently titled, Get Your Organization to Run in Sync. So in the article, you talk about network science. What is network science and what does it tell us about how to create organizations that run in sync? Well, network science is a pretty broad field, which uh, really got going in the in the late '90s. But it, it's been around um, for you could argue a couple of hundred years. Well, I think it's important for uh, organizations to understand it now is is that we're living in a much more network world, and uh, in the past we uh, focused on on hierarchy organizations. But that's breaking down somewhat, and we see uh, networked organizations, anonymous, the hacktivist group is, is a perfect example. Welcome to the podcast, Greg. Nice to be here, Will. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. So let's kick things off today talking about some of the fundamentals of managing innovation. You wrote an article in the Harvard Business Review recently titled, Get Your Organization to Run in Sync. So in the article, you talk about network science. What is network science, and what does it tell us about how to create organizations that run in sync? Well, network science is a pretty broad field, which really got going in the in the late 90s, but it, it's been around for, you could argue, a couple of hundred years. Well, I think it's important for uh, organizations to understand it now is, is that we're living in a much more network world. And uh, in the past, we uh, focused on, on hierarchy as a form of organization, but that's breaking down somewhat. And we see uh, network organizations, anonymous, the hacktivist group is, is a perfect example, which uh, is an organization per se, but it doesn't have any hierarchy or organization chart. At the same time, they're able to 
organized protest that uh, can uh, seriously attack things like the Church of Scientology or the Nation of Tunisia or MasterCard. Also, uh, another uh, place where we're seeing uh, networks really taking effect is in politics, where the color revolutions across Eastern Europe and the Arab Spring, we're seeing networks of people without any kind of formal organization being able to overthrow long-lasting dictatorships. So the idea is if that uh, corporations or more formal organizations can harness those same forces, then you'd really have something. And we're already starting to see this happening happen in certain types of leaderless uh, organizations. There's a company called Morningstar that operates without any, any, uh, any managers and uh, holacracy uh, and other forms of new management or new organizational forms. Yeah. And we're seeing, uh, we're seeing this in places like Zappos and, and lots of other co- companies that are trying to become more networked rather than running things uh, strictly along the lines of an organizational chart. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's interesting you bring up Zappos. Uh, we're, we're working on some culture videos here at Three Pillar, and one of the ones that, are, that one of our HR reps sent over was one on Zappos, and they said, we don't have an open-door policy, we have a no-door policy. So basically, everybody sits together, interacts with one another, and, and they physically do not have office walls in their, in their offices. Yeah, so... It, in the traditional hierarchical type organization, you'll have a leader at the head that, that designs certain initiatives that are then rolled out across the organization uh, at the same time, and things are supposed to go according to a certain predefined plan. Uh, but in a, a more networked organization, the principles are small groups loosely connected but united by a common purpose. So rather than trying to go through some sort of traditional type of change management plan where you're trying to change the organization as a whole, you're focusing on uh, groups that are already on board and trying to help them link together with other like-minded groups and help them gain uh, gain momentum. Uh, I wrote about one recently. A woman is, is taking this approach with uh, cancer, where she started off uh, with one group uh, at Andy Anderson in Houston, and then another group came in, and then other entities within the healthcare system they work with came in. It was rolled out to regional hospitals, and now she's trying to roll the whole thing out uh, in, uh, at the University of Texas system as a whole, which encompasses 16 institutions, including MD Anderson. Um, and, uh, and each one of those institutions might have, I don't know, a dozen affiliated hospitals or something like that. So if, if she had tried to, to make this type of change um, across all of these institutions at once and all of a sudden come in and say, we are going to make this big change, it it probably wouldn't have gone very far. But because she started small and then followed the links 
out of the, the group she started with, it's really starting to gain momentum. Okay, nice. Great examples. Let me ask you, Greg, about the framework that you've come up with to help companies think about how to manage innovation. So there, there are three distinct pillars of innovation in the framework. Can you talk a little bit about what the three pillars of innovation are? Yeah, the three pillars are pretty simple. The first one is innovation competency. Some companies really have innovation in their DNA, and we can talk about Google or Apple, uh, 3M, IDEO. And uh, they started usually with very innovative people and very innovative leaders. But other companies don't have innovation in their blood. They, some of them are older or they started off in their immature businesses. So they have to uh, learn innovation skills. So that's, that's the first pillar, uh, improving your innovation competency. The second is no less important, and that's innovation strategy. Uh, everybody says you want to innovate all the time, but that's not really practical. Most companies need to operate most of the time. You need to take, you need to do the basic blocking and tackling, like taking care of customers and making sure things get from point A to point B. So it's it's really important to figure out how much, how many resources, how much of your resources do you want to uh, focus on innovation, and then within innovation. How much do you want to focus on more sustaining innovations that are very close to what you're doing now? And then uh, the second level is uh, innovations that apply your current competencies to to new areas, which is a a second kind of innovation. And the third innovation is is sort of the the moonshot type innovation. Uh, Google operates along a... 70-20-10 70-20-10 model, where 70% of their innovation is is targeted improving existing products. 20% of their innovation is going into new sectors. And then 10% of their innovation, which is focused on, on their Google X unit now, is, is really uh, moonshots, like autonomous cars, for instance. And the third is innovation management, which is... It focuses on how you actually manage the innovation process, which is also uh, very important. And you 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 went into the uh, some of the kind of different types of innovation that are on the that are on an innovation matrix that you've created. Can you talk about each of the four quadrants of the innovation matrix and what the different types of innovation are that you include in each? Sure. I think it's helpful to give some background here how I came up with the innovation matrix. As a manager, you're always thinking about, okay, we need to to innovate. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you you sort of think like, okay, should we um, we innovate within that department? Should should the people within that department uh, be uh, responsible for innovating in a specific area? Or should we bring a partner in? Or should we start some sort of innovation group? And you can find good arguments and you can find lots of success for a variety of different, uh, different approaches. But, uh, 
but then there's always a question for this particular innovation we need to do, which approach matches that specific kind of job. So the innovation matrix was was my effort to solve that kind of problem. And what I what I figured out is the decision comes down to two basic questions. How well is the problem defined and how well is the domain defined? So for some types of problems, uh, you, 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 you don't really have a very good problem definition. You don't really have a very good domain definition. And, uh, and that, that type of innovation falls under basic research. So some companies, uh, although most do not have uh, basic research units, uh, IBM research is one that's been obviously tremendously successful over uh, 50, 60 years, invented stuff like lasers, and um, uh, AT&T Labs is another one. Microsoft started one 20 years ago or so. Also, some uh, a lot of companies form academic partnerships with uh, research institutions. So they pursue basic research in, in that way. Other times, uh, you have a very, very well-defined problem. You just don't know how to solve it. Uh, and this is, is actually extremely common. And this I call uh, breakthrough innovation. So, for instance, uh, if you have a uh, uh, if if you have a chemistry problem uh, that none of, none of your chemists uh, seem to be able to solve, you can go to uh, places like Innocite, which and get a broad amount of people to a, 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 a broad number of people looking at it. And often, what you'll find is the chemistry problem might actually be a very simple problem for a physicist, for, for example. So with these types of breakthrough innovations where the problem's well-defined, but the field has gotten kind of stuck, it, it, uh, uh, that type of open innovation approach uh, is often very helpful. The third type of innovation is uh, sustaining innovation. And here, this is where you have a well-defined problem and a well-defined solution. And most large companies can, can pursue this type of innovation fairly well through uh, R&D labs or through an outsourcing partner um, to improve existing products. So in terms of strategy and, and the Google model, that would definitely fall into that 70%. And that really is how most innovation gets done. And then the fourth kind is where you have a uh, well-defined domain, but a not very well-defined problem. So, and this, uh, I, I, although it doesn't exactly fit Christensen's definition, this I think of as disruptive innovation. So, when you have a new uh, innovation like a search engine um, that Google developed, but nobody knows, but they take it to Yahoo and they say, "Well, we have no idea what to do with it." We um, we don't want people searching faster. We we want people staying on our site longer. That's how we make money. So those types of innovations are kind of uh, solutions looking for problems. And the VC model uh, does very well with this type of innovation. They uh, start with a very cool application and then eventually find a business model for it. 
innovation labs tend to, uh, that approach tends to work well with that type of innovation. And Google's uh, or 3M's 15 or 20% rule where everybody can sort of work on an area of their interest for a certain uh, amount of time. Um, those are all approaches that work well with disruptive innovation. Okay, and let me ask you about innovation labs, because I feel like there have been some kind of high-profile ones that have been shuttered or at least scaled back recently, one of which was, I think, the Nordstrom Lab. They did a very cool kind of iPad concept video a few years back that got a lot of attention, but I want to say they've recently announced that they're either shuttering that or scaling it back. So what kind of situation would you say is, is, is right to start up an innovation lab? And, and and what kind yeah. of uh, what kind of environment is it not kind of suited for? Yeah, that's a very good point because they usually don't work. Um, and I think the reason why they don't work is that companies bring them in as sort of a panacea. We need more innovation. Let's start an innovation lab, and then um, you know a year or two later they re- you know they realize that they have a bunch of people somewhere doing a bunch of wild things and nobody really knows what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, what innovation labs are really good at are experimenting with things. Uh, the types that tend to do pretty well are the ones who go from, an, uh, who use their innovation labs specifically to do experiments. So for example, uh, a while back, a few years ago, there was a lot of these uh, uh, co-watching apps, and and there still are, that people can can sort of have a social experience along with with watching their their TV. It's a very cool thing, but nobody really knows what to do with it. That that would be a perfect job for an innovation lab, where you can say, okay, let's let's run some experiments uh, with these types of apps apps and, and see if, if um, and, and see if we can figure out a business model around it. Uh, that's a good that's something that innovation labs are very, very good at. If the experiments are kept small scale um, and you're you're very directive about about what you're trying to achieve, innovation labs can be very success, successful. If you think that it's gonna be a bunch of guys who are just come going to come in and solve your innovation problem company-wide, it's probably not going to do very well. Sure. Okay, nice. So let me ask you about a concept that you've written about. It's that, quote-unquote, given enough eyeballs, all bugs are shallow. Could you talk a little bit about what that statement means in the context of managing innovation? Well, that's really just um, – uh, it's actually called Linus's Law. It's it's that's the sort of mantra of the the open development movement or the open software movement, and uh, the idea is is that if you have a small number of people, uh, they'll tend to do a certain amount of things very very well, but then there'll be these bugs that are very very difficult to uh, to root out. But if you have enough people looking at the problem then all bugs become shallow because uh, you're much likely to, uh, to find somebody with the requisite knowledge. Similar to um, the, uh, the innocent of platform I was talking about before, 
that's where you have uh, companies that are really, really stuck on a problem and their best minds uh, can't solve it. But uh, they put it on incentives and quite often someone from a completely different field is able to solve it very, very quickly. So let me ask you about the IBM Design Thinking Program. We've done an episode on design thinking a while back. You wrote recently on your website at www.digitaltonto.com about it. What trends in the marketplace does the IBM Design Thinking Group use to accelerate time to market and improve the quality of the products they create? IBM Design Thinking is a little bit different than traditional design thinking that goes on at, say, the D School in, in Stanford. Mm-hmm. Uh, IBM Design Thinking, uh, I, I think it's, I, I, here again, it's, it's good to take uh, a, a little bit of a step back mm-hmm. and think about how business has been changing over the last, let's say, three, four, or five decades. Back in the 70s, uh, Toyota really changed the way manufacturing works with their lean manufacturing program that focused on just-in-time operations, smart automation, and and a more data-driven approach to evaluation. And uh, and that's really how Toyota became the world's biggest car manufacturer. And everybody's been trying to catch them ever since. About 15, maybe 20 years ago, uh, some people started thinking that uh, maybe the same types of ideas could work for, for soft software development. Uh, and this was the, uh, and they developed uh, a whole bunch of concepts under the uh, heading of agile uh, software uh, development, which uh, again was much more, uh, was much less modular and sequential than uh, typical wa- waterfall methods. And it thrived much more on collaboration, getting uh, more people involved earlier, including customers, a much more iterative approach um, rather than this sort of strict planning cycles and emphasizing adaptation over prediction. Um, Design thinking, the sort of pure IDEO uh, Stanford B school type of approach, was about changing the product development, the idea of product development from being about features and functions to a more uh, user-centered approach. So you're, rather than trying to build a, um, an app that has a, a set number of features, you're thinking about, okay, what problem am I actually trying to solve for the user and working back from there. And then uh, the fourth sort of wave is the Lean Startup Method, which was originally developed by Steve Blank and then embellished by uh, other people, such as Eric Ries. Uh, and this is uh, uh, really based on the idea that, that business plans never really work out. So rather than, than trying to, to make your business adhere to the business plan, you start off with a minimal, uh, minimally viable product, and uh, uh, and then adapt rather than try to predict. So, IBM um, basically 
combined all these things into a new a new approach they call IBM design thinking, which uses a lot of these different elements. They focus much more on solutions. They bring in customers uh, much, much earlier in the process, actually at the beginning of the process. They're constantly testing with users. Uh, they bring, uh, there's a lot of rapid prototyping. They do something they call playback sessions with engineers, with not only engineers and designers, but people with from marketing, finance, just about any place in the company that you can think of. So in a nutshell, it's about, you know, not starting off with a big plan and then ending up with some sort of huge thing and, and having to go back and fix bugs. It's about uh, focusing things on the user, uh, getting them to try out early prototypes much, much sooner and then uh, rooting out those bugs as you go along so that you're, you're not spending a lot of time on the back end with uh, some sort of nominally finished product that then you have to go and, and bug fix for an incredibly long uh, period of time. Okay, got it. And, and let me ask, let me stick with the design Mark Andreessen wrote a well-known piece in the Wall Street Journal a few years back called Software is Eating the World, and you wrote a similar you wrote a similarly titled piece recently, Design is Eating the World. So what are you seeing out there in the marketplace that makes you think that that's the case? Well, in the first place, software really is a design, right? I mean, software is nothing if not a design. And I think in a nutshell, that's... Uh, uh, that's really the consequence of moving from uh, the old world where things were atoms, uh, you know, and, and, and something like a Porsche was very good because it, it used energy in, in a very uh, efficient and powerful way to something like uh, a Google search engine, which Google's algorithms don't cost any more to run than anybody else's algorithms but the way they're designed makes them uh, more valuable. Uh, Apple is, is another obviously great example. We buy uh, Apple products because they're designed better. So uh, I think 20 or 30 years ago, or maybe even 10 years ago, we thought of design as something uh, that sort of dressed up the product in a, in a nicer way, where these days design has really become the product. Okay, nice. So, so let me go back to the overarching umbrella of managing innovation. Most of the time when you think about managing something, you're thinking about managing what you can control within the four walls of your own company. You recently wrote a piece about how power is shifting from corporations to platforms. So how would you define platform in that sense? Sure. Um, platforms are how we access ecosystems. Um, Bill Joy, the co-founder of uh, Sun Microsystems, has a famous law called Joy's Law that most of the smart uh, most of the smart people work for somebody else, um, and that's always been true. But what's different now is these days most of the best resources reside somewhere else. So uh, if, if it's not like in the old days where if you were General Motors. Uh, you could do almost everything in-house. These days, uh, if you want to build a product, 
um, you uh, need to access ecosystems of developers. Uh, and uh, Apple did that in a very, uh, very nice way with the App Store. Instead of trying to, uh, to go out and find the best developers who could make the best apps, they created this system of uh, APIs and SDKs uh, and supported developer uh, ecosystem of developers that consumers can access through the platform of the App Store. Uh, and uh, crowdfunding is another great example of this. Rather than um, you know uh, having to have financial resources or marketing resources, you can access uh, those resources through a platform like Kickstarter. I just, I think a, a, a really nice example of, of how the world has shifted uh, from corporations to platforms is the situation with Ford in the uh, in the financial crisis, where their top competitors, uh, General Motors and Chrysler, were uh, were both about to go bankrupt. Twenty or thirty years ago, Ford would have been elated. And said, "Oh, that's great. We can take the market for themselves, for for ourselves." But instead, they actually went and, and lobbied the federal government to to save General Motors and Chrysler. And they weren't doing so out of, you know, uh, out of uh, altruism or just because they're they're such nice guys. Uh, they did it because they were tied into the same ecosystem of suppliers that that GM and Chrysler were. So if that uh, if that ecosystem of, of uh, suppliers went down, Ford would go down as well. Okay, nice. So you wrote a piece in Forbes recently about the Tony Soprano problem that's related to what we were just talking about. For listeners out there that may not be familiar with it, what is the Tony Soprano problem? Well, the Tony Soprano problem is uh, that we talk a lot about collaboration and how important it is and how it's becoming more important. But most people who, who manage operations, they really want to know, uh, you know, how do I get people to do what I want? Which is, uh, and as I uh, talk to more uh, managers through, through my consulting practice, it always comes down to that when you talk about platforms and ecosystems and movements. Uh, they want to know how can we get our people to follow the plan, which is uh, very similar to a situation that happened in in The Sopranos, where his therapist was uh, telling Tony uh, about how he can be more more uh, more collaborative and and a better listener. And he said, "Yeah, but then I don't get people to do what I want." So the Tony <laughs> Soprano problem is. How do we, uh, is that managers now need to shift from getting people to do what they want to uh, inspiring people to want what they want. And if you look at, you know, a company like, uh, like Google, they can get all the best people to work for them because people believe in what Google is doing. And they, and they believe that, uh, that there's a shared purpose there and working at Google means, uh, more than working something something else, so uh, they don't uh, they don't need to force their engineers to to do what they want. The engineers come to Google wanting what they want, 
And I think that's true with most of the successful companies today. I, I talked to uh, a great bit of, 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 of really some of the best companies in the world. And, and you can always tell which, which companies have people that are truly committed and, and, and really have a, uh, a shared sense of mission and purpose and which ones are just uh, coming to work to do a job. Okay, nice. Well, great great words of wisdom to close on. Greg, thanks so much for joining us today. Great talking with you about managing innovation. Thanks a lot, Will. It's great to be here. If you'd like to learn more about Greg Sattel, you can follow him on Twitter at at Digital Tonto. You can also visit his website at www.digitaltonto.com and you can find his writings on places like the Harvard Business Review, Forbes.com and InnovationExcellence.com Thanks again to Greg Sattel for joining us this week and thank you for joining us this week. Don't forget to tune in to next week's episode when we're excited to have Chris Ulrich, Vice President of User Experience at Immersion Corporation on the podcast to talk about innovation and haptic touch. We'll talk about why touch is one of the most powerful senses available to any type of developer, how touch technology may eventually enable entirely new forms of communication, and why you shouldn't be alarmed to hear that your clothes may soon reach out and touch you. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week. The Innovation Engine podcast is recorded, produced, edited, and published each week by Three Pillar Global a product lifecycle management and software development company based in Fairfax, Virginia. For more information on the company or our services, please visit our website at www.3pillarglobal.com.